Hey, if you're older than six and you're leaving for children's church, okay, I expect you back in here in just a minute, okay? Uh, Every family is based upon certain convictions. Every family is based upon certain convictions. Um, Last year when my kids got married, um, I had a time with each one of the daughter-in-laws and son-in-laws to talk to them about family convictions. Now, you have to understand, uh, those conversations I had with my son-in-laws had a little bit different tone than they had with my sweet little daughter-in-laws. But, you know, you got a young man across the barrel, you know, and it's the time, if you're going to say anything, it's time to say it, you know. And so, um, of course, my girls got married first, and so I I dealt with my two son-in-laws and talked about what we believe as a family, what are our convictions, what are our family values, because they're coming into the family. Now, when my sons were getting married, I, I asked them to come over to the house, or I met with the daughter-in-laws with them, and sort of I was talking to the daughter-in-law, but really I was talking to my son to say, no, this is the way you're going to conduct yourself, boy. And what I wanted her to hear was what I had said to him, so that if he ever didn't live up to that, you just, you just call me, all right? Um... I talked to them about our faith being important, obviously. That there are things that are more important in this world than material things. I believe that's one of our family convictions. Things aren't going to make you happy. And uh, don't forsake people for the pursuit of possessions and things. So we talked about Uh, our faith and we obviously talked about Jesus is the source of life and we only have life at all of what God intends it to be if we live it through a relationship a daily relationship with Jesus Christ so we talked a little bit about that now I'm giving you the five-minute version of the hour and a half that I spent with my son-in-laws but uh, we talked about the importance of church And participation and involvement in church. We talked about tithing. Hmm. Yeah, we, I laid it on thick right about then. Yeah. You realize all my needs in life have been met by God's people who tithed. That's how we had clothes on our back and a roof over our head and food on our table because God's people were faithful to tithe. So what do you think we ought to do now? Yeah, all right. So um, we talked about some of those convictions. Uh, We talked about family and the importance of relationships. Uh, I talked to my son-in-laws about how we treat women and what we do to people who don't treat women that way. And as God is my witness, I told my son-in-laws, you ever hurt my daughter, I'll kill you. I know this is being recorded and this is going to be on the Internet. That's fine. I have witnesses. No, I'll kill you. I said, I'll start a prison ministry. I don't care. I'll go to jail. It doesn't matter to me. There's a lot of lost people in jail that need to hear what I have to say. I don't care. I'll kill you. 
They sort of chuckled and then kind of thought, I think, I think the dude may be being serious. <laughs> I'd kind of laugh and then I'd back off a little bit and give him the look, you know. You got to just, the young man's got to have a little bit of doubt. I don't own a gun, but I know a lot of people that own guns. But that may not be that, it may not be that quick, son, I'm telling you. Um, that, that conversation actually went on. I'm, so, it, I'm not just making this up. Um, so we talked about how we treat women. What are our convictions as a family? And then, oh, I probably talked about a lot of things, but I, I talked about that God's made us to be difference makers in this world. And you've got to find how God wants to use you to make a difference in this world. And so I felt like it was important for me to lay the groundwork as we have new people coming into the family to say these are our convictions. They are unwavering. They are non-negotiable. And those truths are worth dying for if it came down to it. I believe one of the characteristics of a church that God would consider great would be a church that has convictions about things that are unwavering, non-negotiable, and if it comes down to it, they are worth dying for. I believe one of the characteristics of a great church which is what we've been talking about these weeks, is that it is a church that has convictions. We've talked about in subsequent Sundays that a great church is one that loves one another, has a vision that is worldwide, that has great worship and great leadership. And I want to add to that this morning that I believe a great church is characterized by convictions that are unwavering, non-negotiable, and worth dying for. In our culture, morality and truth are relative. But in Christ, morality and truth are absolute. In our culture, when I say that morality and truth are relative, in our culture we are taught that whatever we decide or our moral standards or what the truth is, is okay. We just decide for ourselves. But as Christians in Christ, morality and truth are not relative. They are absolutes and they have been set by the sovereign one of the universe, God himself. I believe when we look to the early church, we see that they had convictions that were absolutes. Uh, this may be a strange verse, but Jesus in some of his last words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. 
And before you rush off to what he says after that, just sink in that truth. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. He says, I am the sovereign one of this universe. And so then he gives us the commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's the phrase, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I take from that phrase, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, is that Jesus said there are some absolutes that I am unwavering in, are non-negotiable, and they are worth dying for. They are absolutes. In our culture, moral, morality, and truth are relative, but in Christ, morality and truth are absolute. The things that Jesus taught are still binding today. They are still the truth because the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Morality and truth do not change because God does not change and He is the source of our, our morality and our truth. I really believe that we are in an almost bizarre time in our country. In which we are trying to accommodate every deviant behavior. In a practical sense, it is not possible to accommodate every deviant behavior. But we're, I believe we're in this bizarre phase of our country. I hope someday we will get out of it in which we have to make accommodations for whatever lifestyle people choose to live. Obviously, uh, quite... Obviously, the, the hot issue now is, is the transgender. Uh, I don't even know what you call it. And you get down to really just the core of American culture when you get to Target. And the Target Corporation says... We are going to allow transgender people to use whatever bathroom they feel accustomed to. Now let me just say this. As a man who's been to Africa and lost his modesty many, many years ago. I have no modesty left. And if you've been to Africa with me, you know what I'm referring to. Quite honestly... If there is a woman who feels that she is a man and comes to the bathroom with me, it's not a big deal to me. Okay? I don't really care. I understand that if you're transgender, then the bathroom situation is a difficult issue because you have a physical being, but... 
you identify as something else. And so if you're a female that dresses as a male, then it's difficult for you to go into the female bathroom. I understand that. But I guess my point this morning is you really can't practically accommodate for all of these different things in American culture without then violating my rights as an individual. I said I don't really care. You know what I do care about? Is my wife and my daughters and someday my granddaughters. And I'm saying, once you are a male and you dress as a female and you go in that bathroom, then Daryl Smith's got a problem. Because it's, it's not just that we're accommodating for you, it's that all of a sudden your choices are then violating my right to whatever. And so I guess I realize... That it, you know, to me it is the, it is the, it's this hot button topic in our culture. And what I realize, it is not sustainable to accommodate every deviant behavior. It's, sooner or later you're violating someone else's right. And, and many times it seems like in America, for the sake of the minority, we are violating the rights of the majority. It's interesting to see the developments in the North Carolina law in which they did not grant special, uh, rights to transgenders and now there has been this backlash and even the federal government this week uh, through the department of justice has come back and says well if you don't accommodate to these then we will simply take your funding for higher education thinking oh now now we're getting serious now (laughs) it's like okay now now this is what we're going to do yeah as if one equates to the other or that i'm thinking no no it's big brother's going to say no you're going to do this Are you going to lose millions and millions of dollars? That is where we are as a culture. And even to see this week with... I'm I'm serious, it's just bizarre to me. It doesn't make any sense that the mayor uh, of New York City with the council has called for a boycott of Chick-fil-A in New York City because... Their president, I believe it's Dan Cathy, Baptist layman from Atlanta, Georgia, raised in pews just like ours, made the statement a number of years ago that he believed marriage was between a man and a woman. And even though that was years ago, the mayor and the council of New York City have called for a boycott because his stance on marriage is what we have held as Americans for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so it is bizarre to me that we are told as the majority in America that we are to make accommodations and we are to keep quiet. But when we express our views then, you know, they've called for a boycott of North Carolina. You know, don't go to North Carolina because of the law that they didn't give special rights to the transgenders. Um, Everyone 
can voice their convictions except for the, for the majority. And it, it is a bizarre time to me in America. And what I see is that, once again, the, almost the <laughs> taking it to the nth degree, if morality is relative, where does that take us to? And it's taken us further than I ever dreamed it would take us to. The early church, under the commands of Jesus, had moral convictions. And they would have taken stands, and we could see those in the Scriptures, on the things that God said, no, these are non-negotiable. These are worth dying for. But, and listen to me now, because i got about 20 minutes left. There was something deeper and more significant and more at the core of the early church than even moral issues. Because quite honestly, people, what do we expect? People that do not know Christ, how then will they live? Some of these things, it's like, well, of course. They're going to go down a road to what I would consider bizarre behavior, but... That is life apart from God if there are no moral standards. And so the early church would have taken, yes, a stand that, that morals are absolutes. But there was something even more significant than that. And it was one truth that they were unwavering in, that it was non-negotiable. And not only was it worth dying for, they did die for and it was this truth that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no other way to get to heaven, to get to God, to know God except through Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And, you know, in our culture, morality and truth are relative, but in Christ, morality and truth are absolute the one absolute truth that you see that was preached by the early church from, from Peter to Stephen to Philip to Paul was that there is salvation only in Jesus Christ. One verse, Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. When Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, having been called in, as I said last week, the very group that has just crucified Jesus <laughs> days before this, he knows that as he speaks, it could be his last words. But he says in Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know what he was saying to those religious men that day? <laughs> if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God, and you're never getting to heaven. There is salvation in no other way other than the name. They ask him, "What in what name have you healed this lame man? And he was like, mm, mm, I'm so glad you asked that question. Because <laughs> it is the name Jesus. 
And there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Peter preached it boldly, with confidence, with deep conviction. And so did Stephen. And they killed him. And Philip preached it to the Ethiopian eunuch when he came to the Scripture. And it says, in beginning at that Scripture, he preached unto him Jesus. And Paul preached it as he went into his missionary journeys, town after town after town. And there was always a church formed, but invariably they ran him out of town because it was not a truth that they wanted to hear that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can get to God. It was an exclusive claim, and that's my point. In our world today, not only is morality but truth relative, and we choose whatever road we want to walk. And somehow the the common uh, thought in America today is, well, we're all on different roads, but we're all going to get there. That's not what the Christian faith says. There's only one road, and it's through Jesus Christ. And church, I would say this to you. Yeah, our, our nation's messed up. But that is not the primary issue that is at the core of the problems of America today. It is simply the effect of hearts that have not surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ. The only answer that we have is Jesus. And we better be careful, church, that the one truth that is non-negotiable and worth dying for is that only Jesus saves. Several years ago, I noticed a man around Huntington. He walked... And he had sunglasses on. And he pulled a little rolling suitcase behind him. I'd seen him for a while. Didn't know who he was. Finally, one day I was driving down Main Street and he was coming up Main Street. And as clear as I am speaking now, God's Spirit said to me, Why have you never stopped and talked to that man? And I thought in my mind, I can't pull over right here. I'll get hit by traffic. And so I know this, I know you held your preacher up on a pedestal. Some of y'all. I mean, Joe and Rick's not so much. But anyhow, anyhow, she just laughed when I said, I know you hold your preacher up on a pedestal. And she just laughed. Right. Uh, And I know I should have stopped that day and asked him what his story was. And introduce myself, but I didn't. Oh, but like the prophet Jonah, God knows where you are. (laughs) He will track you down. The next week, the phone rang. I don't even know why I was answering the phone. And the voice on the other end of the line said, This is Keith Griggs. And I'm wondering if the the church can help me with a prescription. It was $5. He said, and he describes who he is. Okay, I get it. I get it, God. So starting that day, I I developed a friendship with Keith. And for over a year, I don't know, 14, 15 months, he he needed help. He'd alienated his family and everybody else in his life. And uh, 
was legally blind. And he needed help. Somebody would take him to Lufkin to go to Walmart and do some banking things. And uh, then as we kind of developed it, we would go eat together and we would, uh, we'd go driving around, Brother Shane. Some afternoons, he'd just want to go drive and I'd go over to his apartment and we'd talk. And, uh, I spent as much time with him in that 14, 15 months than I did anybody else in my life other than my immediate family. It was kind of strange. I always thought we were kind of the odd couple. And you may have looked at us and thought, well, Brother Darrell's the odd one in the group. But anyhow, that's fine. The reason he was alienated from his family was because of his addiction to alcohol. Oh, and I shortly found out why his family was alienated from him. The friendship was contentious when he was drinking. He talked to me in ways that people do not talk to the Baptist preacher. I remember those words from high school. It's just been a few years. And I began to share the gospel with Keith. Obviously, he knew I was the Baptist preacher. Duh. <laughs> What's he going to talk to me about? I'm going to talk to him about his need for Jesus. I would say to you today that in the course of those months, that year plus that I was friends with him, well, I would say this in my 54 years, I've shared the gospel more with Keith Griggs than any other person in my life, by far. Sometimes I was yelling at him. Sometimes I would be yelling at him on the phone in the office, in the church, and I would have to hang up the phone and come out and see who was in the hallway to apologize to them for the way they heard the preacher yelling on the phone in his office, thinking, who in the world could he be talking to? But you didn't know the friendship we had either. Some of y'all did. I shared the gospel with him over and over that his only hope was Jesus Christ. And until he surrendered his life, I didn't have any other answer for him. Oh, there were several Friday nights. We were so close to me picking him up and coming the most excellent way. But something always came up. It wasn't a good. It wasn't good. We never made it to most excellent way. Oh, but I'm persistent if nothing else. So sometimes when we were out running around, I'd say, hey, I need to run by the church to pick up something. I said, oh, why don't you come in with me? So the staff would meet him and talk to him and I'd do whatever I needed to do. One of those times... He said, hey, I want to go down there and see that room where you preach. He didn't, he didn't even know to call it the sanctuary. He just always referred to it as the room where you preach. We came through those back doors one day, and we walked in, and we were just standing right here. And he looked at me, and every time I'd shared the gospel with him, he'd said, hey, I'm not religious. I don't believe all that stuff. I don't even want to hear it. Oh, I'm thinking, if you're going to be my friend, you're going to hear it. Sorry, it's who I am. We came to the sanctuary that first time. I'll never forget it. And we stood, we're standing right here, and I'm just kind of standing here. 
And he said, would you pray? Yeah. You know what I prayed that day for my friend that I'd known several months? I mean, at this point, we're not mixing, mixing any words. Or there's no reason to hurt, worry about hurt feelings or anything else. I prayed for God as I did every day that, God, you would open his heart because I can't. God, would you open his heart so that he could see the truth about Jesus? Some of y'all don't know this, but I have a personal prayer list. Oh, there's a few people in this room on it. <laughs> and Keith Griggs has been on that list. It's a little short list on my phone. And every day I would pray that God would open his heart because, God, I can't. God, open his heart. Open his heart. Uh, we left the sanctuary that day, and I took him home, and so we're sitting there in the parking lot. Sounds like a date or something, doesn't it? If this was a, if this was a dating relationship, this was too much. It was high drama, and, and this girl was high maintenance. Woo! I would have dropped her a long time ago. If it weren't for Jesus, no, this relationship has no possible way of surviving. He told me as he was getting out of the car, he said, hey, he said, I want you to know that when I walked in that room where you preach, he said, I felt something. I just laughed and I said, Keith, that's the presence of God. We continued in this contentious relationship. He would talk about his problems and I would continue to share with him. Keith, the only answer I have for you is that Jesus is your only hope and until you surrender your heart to him, I have no answer. I, I, can't, I can't deal with you about your alcoholism. I can't do anything. And he didn't want to do anything about it. One day we ran an errand to Lowe's and he had some DVDs he was going to sell back and he wanted to lock my pickup. I haven't locked my pickup. If you want to steal my pickup, just go get the keys. They're on the front pew right now. Or just ask me. I'll give you the pickup. You can have it. I don't lock my pickup. And part of the reason I don't lock my pickup is because the keys don't work on the doors and they used to work on the passenger door but I discovered that day after we'd locked it because he didn't want his DVDs stolen that it wouldn't even unlock the passenger side. <laughs> he asked me to lock the doors and I thought, hmm, okay. We get out of Lowe's. No, I can't unlock it. I stood there, five, this is five, ten minutes, kept going driver's side, passenger side, trying to get the key to work, nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden something told me God said, pray. And I said, Keith, I mean, we're, we're, we're good friends. I mean, there's no... I said, I need to pray. And I'm sure he didn't bow his head or close his eyes. And I prayed a prayer like this. I said, God, I cannot get my doors open. I need you to help me get the doors open. And I prayed in the name of Jesus. Amen. And as God is my witness and Keith Griggs is my witness today, I stuck my car keys in and I turned it. And the driver's side went boop it was unlocked and Keith went what <laughs> I prayed out loud and, and he always talked about that he said no, no 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 don't you remember that day that day yeah yeah it was our miracle at Lowe's <laughs> it was a miracle that day and God didn't do it for the preacher God did it for him But he still didn't surrender his heart. Miracles. Mm -mm. Months after that, y'all give me five more minutes, okay? Um, 
months after that, in fact, it was January of 2015, he came into the church with me and we went in the room where I preach and we got to the front. This was like a Monday morning. And he said, I want you to preach a sermon. Thinking, okay, this is awkward. I didn't remember the day, but I was thumbing through my sermon notes. All of my, all of my notes are on white sheets of paper. And I'm thumbing looking for something this week, and I came to this pink sheet, and I looked at it, and I went, oh, wow. That's the sermon I preached before I preached the sermon to Keith Griggs in the sanctuary. It was the first Sunday of January 2015. I remember it because of the content of the message. It was about opportunities that God gives us. And he sat on the pew right where I sit. He sat there and I thought, oh my, this is awkward. The custodian girl's going to come by and go, mm. Go to the office and go, I think the preacher, mm. Yeah, he is not normal. He is in the sanctuary preaching. There's only one man on the front pew. The sermon illustration started that day. It was because it was the first Sunday of 1850 when Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved in the little primitive Methodist Baptist church, primitive Methodist church. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, there's a whole story of the snowstorm and the preacher didn't make it that day and there was only about a dozen people there that day and they decided not to have church except one young man, 15 years old, came and sat on the back about where Mrs. Woody is sitting. And... Um, they thought, well, we need to have church. And so they decided the preacher hadn't even made it that day. There was a deacon there, and they said, you need to preach. And he selected his text from Isaiah 45, 22, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon would say later, later, it seemed in an attempt to make several points, he made none at all. And so he preaches from Isaiah 45, 22 for just a few minutes, and it says, look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And he said he preached and he fumbled around, and finally at the end he said there was something that welled up in that Methodist layman and he said he looked right back at me and he said young man you and this is the way I preached it that Monday morning to Keith Griggs young man of all people you seem to be most miserable and until you surrender to my text you will be miserable and then he said he welled up and he yelled look to Jesus look look and I preached it that day just like that as Keith Griggs said on the front row look to Jesus look Look, my text that morning was 2 Corinthians 6, 2, and it says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And I preached about there are some opportunities that only come one time in your life. And God says it's now. And there were tears in his eyes that morning. But he didn't surrender his life to Jesus that day. Last year for 10 weeks, Keith was sober. And after that 10 weeks, when he began to drink again, we had a parting in our ways as friends. About six months ago, he started drinking and... It was bad. And I finally told him, I've told you everything I know to tell you. I have nothing else. 
And what I said to him is, I cannot walk that road with you. If that's the road you choose to walk, I cannot. He said, you'd all, you said you'd always be my friend. I said, I am your friend. But all I'm doing is enabling you to live the life that you want to live, and I can't do it anymore. I've given you the answer because, you see, we would always have these conversations about his problems with family and all these things. And I said, Keith, the reason they are the way they are is because the way you treat them when you're on alcohol. Uh, but alcohol's not really the issue. The only answer is Jesus. Do you understand today that my goal that God had given me was not that Keith would be sober, but that he would be saved. And he did good for ten weeks there, but still his heart was empty. It was always, Keith, the issue is that you need to surrender your life to Jesus. If I'd said it once, I literally said it hundreds of times to Keith Griggs in the 14 to 15 months that we were friends. It was the only answer that I had. Hmm. Y'all know the story from this week. It was Keith Griggs that was walking down the road Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. I knew his routine. He was, his money had come in the bank and he was going to the ATM to get cash out. 6 a.m. When he was hit by a car and he died. Oh, my. And you know, my only, the only thought that I can hold to, and I didn't even know this until I talked to his brother. He said, when the man got there, Keith was trying to sit up. And he told him to lay back down. So I know, at least for a short time, that he was alive after he got hit by the car. And you know what my hope is? Because I'd always said to him, when I would share the gospel, I said, Keith, don't pass into eternity without Jesus. If it ever comes down to it, you cry out to Jesus. I'd said it many, many times. And my only hope and prayer somehow is that in those moments... because he had heard it so many times from me that he knew in those dying moments to cry out to Jesus. I don't know that this morning. I hold out hope for that. Uh, and you know, the really the point, as I said earlier, wasn't about Keith being sober. It was about him being saved. And I've, I've questioned God.
because I'm saying, why, God? Why? Why for 14 to 15 months? The only thing I can come up with is maybe because I had had that conviction that was unwavering, non-negotiable, and worth dying for. And I told him over and over the gospel. Then in those last moments, when he was drawing his last breath, that he cried out to Jesus. And um, I tell that story because I was going to tell that story this morning anyhow, regardless of what my sermon was. Because it's a story that needs to be told. And the only way I can tie it in to my sermon, quite honestly, is we have to have convictions. In Christ, morality and truth are absolute. And yes, the church must stand on absolute morals. But even more important than that is the absolute truth that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And let us tell the people around us every day, whether we're friends with them or not, because you never know when it will be their last day. Um, if you stand with me this morning. Father, today we thank you that you are everlasting God. And Father, we're thankful today that your grace is always greater than our sin. And so, Father, we pray that we would know your grace and your mercy in our lives. And Father, when we've experienced that, whatever our sin may be, that Father, you'd help us to be faithful to share that message that is non-negotiable and worth dying for, that it is that Jesus saves. Father, today I pray for anyone here. And Father, I know that your word says that now, accepted time and now is the day of salvation and I pray for those today that your spirit would draw Father they would receive Jesus today and I trust this to you in that name that is above all names the name of Jesus you give love you are love you bring light to the dark you give